The Athletic. Last week, The Athletic broke the news that Manchester United planned to bring back Mason Greenwood. Speculation builds that the striker Mason Greenwood could return to the team. A young English striker who had sexual assault charges against him dropped in February. Charges that he continues to deny. Manchester United striker Mason Greenwood is to leave the club after what's being described as... Following mounting criticism from fans, the media, charities and even from within the club, on Monday, United performed a remarkable U-turn on that decision. It was clear from day one for, well, for me and for, I think, anybody who obviously saw that evidence that was initially released that he wouldn't play for Manchester United again. And so so today, there. we need to talk about what happens next. I'm Ayo Akimulere. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. So I'm joined today by The Athletic, Sarah Shepard and also Adam Crafton as well. You'll also hear from a conversation with Teresa Parker from Women's Aid a little later on in the podcast. But first, Adam, let's go to you on this one. We spoke on the podcast last Friday when it looked very much like Mason Greenwood would indeed return as a Manchester United player. Fair to say a fair bit has happened since then. So just, just bring us up to speed. Yeah, so I suppose I think by now most people will know that you know, Manchester United had a plan to bring Mason Greenwood back to the first team when that then became public knowledge on across Wednesday, Thursday, Friday last week and further details of the extent of those plans, for example, even preparing what kind of photographs should be taken of Mason Greenwood during training sessions in order to filter it in a positive way to the public and help shape public perception and other details like you know preparing exactly what kind of answers Eric Ten Hag, the manager, should have, not only initially, but also short-term, medium-term and, and beyond. I think that really underpinned the extent of the planning. And it led to, the, as you say, this huge backlash. You had members of parliament, charities that specialize in in supporting women who, who have experienced violence, um, were very, very critical of Manchester United. And a, and a kind of tidal wave of pressure within the club as well, because you had staff members who were really considering their positions and their futures at the club. Um, as a result of United's handling of the matter. And that all led to crisis meetings on Friday night in which United's uh, most senior decision makers eventually decided, uh, mostly Richard Arnold, the chief executive, to row back on this plan to bring Mason Greenwood back. And that was communicated to the public on Monday afternoon, three statements, which all came out pretty much simultaneously. You had a statement from the club, you had a, a, an open letter from Richard Arnold, and you also had Mason Greenwood himself. And the decision was that Mason Greenwood remained contracted to Manchester United as, as things stand. But a decision has been taken that it's in his best interest to move somewhere else to continue his career away from the club. United attributed this to the harsh spotlight of life at Manchester United. Sarah, I know you've written about this Mason Greenwood uh, situation in, in The Athletic, and we'll talk about that in, in just a second. But uh, Adam just highlighted three statements um, were released early on this week and some confusing information amongst all three of them. What were your thoughts when you read them? Yeah, they were, I mean, they were long. Um, <laughs> and they were also, like you said, very conflicting. And they, and they left more questions than answers. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people who were upset by the way that Manchester United have handled this would have read the statements and and not really felt any better about it, even though Manchester United have come to the decision that, that those people would have wanted. The way that they've come to it and the way that they've communicated it has just left people, I think, a little bit confused. You know, they're, they're saying that they believe and they have evidence that Mason Greenwood 
has not committed any of the things he was charged with and which he obviously denied. The charges were all dropped. But there are also words like cleared, which are difficult because he wasn't technically kind of factually cleared. incorrect, really. Criminally, yeah. yeah in the, 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 the charges were dropped. He, wasn't, he was never cleared. The case never went to trial. Mm. And, you know, United also say, or I think Richard Arnold said that they had access to certain evidence, but not all evidence. You know, they were limited in their powers of investigation. And yet they have decided that he is innocent, but... Even so, he's not going to stay at the club, like Adam said, because for for his own sake, to take him out of the the glare of the spotlight. Um, no, it was, it was a pretty bizarre thing where you have basically Manchester United. It almost felt as though <laughs> they'd kind of kept much of what the statement would have been if he'd mm. stayed at the club, but kind of tacked on to the end. But actually, because of the harsh spotlight of life, they may as well have added because of you know what's happened over the past few days in terms of a media reaction. We, we've kind of had no choice but to come to this decision. And I think as Sarah says, you know, United all along this process have been referring to partial evidence that's been in the public domain. What they're essentially asking the general public here is to is to think, well, Manchester United know more than us and therefore we should trust Manchester United on this. And, you know, on the one hand, some people will see that and say, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, you know, they can't say absolutely everything. Some maybe for legal reasons, maybe for reasons of privacy. I think other people will find that very difficult to accept given the damning audio and images that have been in the public domain. I think people, a lot of people would have wanted more substantial explanations. And as I say, Manchester United may be trapped in terms of what they're actually able to disclose publicly. So I say that for, for interests of balance, but it makes me think it was always a borderline impossible task, particularly when you have, and this is a far more broader observation, a club where the ownership is completely mistrusted by both the supporters and the general public. If you're asking to take the club's word on something as big as this, I don't think that relationship is there in order to do so. Yeah. As Adam just pointed out, Sarah, it's very hard to unsee or unhear the footage that that was out publicly. It's fair to say that if as an employer, you are setting a standard of what you will accept or not accept, regardless of what else might be happening around it, which we might not be privy to. You have an obligation to set a president as an employer of the standards in which the club operate on. Yeah, I think the statement referred to standards and values at Manchester United, which was a really interesting phrase to include when you're talking about a situation like this. Um, And when we know that their initial intention was to bring Mason Greenwood back, um, what standards and values exactly are you standing by there? I'm not exactly sure. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, this is Manchester United. I, I think any employer anywhere in the world, you know, should have morals and, and ethics that they stand by and, and values that they want their employees to stand by. But when it's something as public and as global and as popular in basic terms as Manchester United, then then those standards have to be, they have to be high mm. because there are millions of people watching your every, every move. Mm. There are children idolizing those players and everything that they do and imitating things that they do on the pitch. So, so I, I usually get very queasy when people start talking about, you know, footballers as role models and, and the level of scrutiny that can sometimes be applied unfairly to footballers. I think in this instance, what you're asking people to do or Manchester United supporters to do if you bring Mason Greenwood back is not only to accept or tolerate that decision, 
you're asking people to celebrate, to cheer, to potentially sing the person's name. And I think when an image has been so irreparably damaged, that is an extraordinary thing to, to actually ask people to do. And that's where I think it, it does get into that realm of broader significance. And, you know, I'm not saying that football supporters across, you know, across the world sing the names of deeply flawed, uh, deeply flawed characters. Historically. Right, historically, mm. continually, right? Probably even to, the, to this day, you'll still have players from previous generations whose names are sung and whatever. But I think in, in 2023, there was always going to there was always going to be some people in this case who thought the audio was the beginning and the end of the story mm. because of how difficult that is to unhear and the images are so difficult to unsee. I know that's what sort of my colleague Danny Taylor was writing a few months ago, just saying, how do you get past that? Once Manchester United went past that, that is when it became a quagmire for them because that's when they decided for some reason to try and adjudicate as though they are the police, the CPS, the judge and the jury, none of which they are qualified to do and try and come to a verdict on charges that had been dropped. That to me set them a standard that was always going to make this process flawed. You're listening to The Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev. I'm so interested in, in how the investigations were conducted I mean, from what we understand, it was a Manchester United investigation. I mean, what's to say that if they did get an independent uh, to pop in and, you know, look through this entire case that Manchester United are still paying someone who's independent and who's to say that what's going to come out isn't what we've got right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. But I think just reading the words in their statement, what makes me uncomfortable, I guess, is is when they say, you know, based on the evidence available to us. And when you think about, well, what is the evidence that's going to be available to you, to Manchester United? They say that they spoke to uh, the complainant's family. They said they couldn't speak to the complainant themselves, but they spoke to the complainant's family. But largely the evidence that's going to be available to them is, is probably going to come from Mason Greenwood's side. And it says, you know, based on that evidence, we have concluded the evidence online is not a full picture. So that, yeah, that, that's what makes me quite uncomfortable about the fact that Manchester United have conducted their own investigation. But like you said, if it was an external, external um, party conducting that investigation paid by Manchester United, we don't know ultimately. But th those words in Manchester United's statement just made me shift a little bit. Mm. But I remember, I mean, there was a case a few years ago where you had historic sexual abuse in football. And I think the FA, the Football Association paid an external barrister to, to go through that case and, and and do an investigation. And there was those criticisms that you know that you say in terms of, well, the company's paying, so therefore they'll come up with the answers mm -hmm. that you want. There'll always be that level of suspicion. I think United's intention in terms of the panel, the way that they formed it, you had the legal counsel, you had someone from commercial, someone from the football side, the COO, the CEO. So there was a balance of interest and that could work both ways, right? You could have the commercial people. I have no idea what those conversations were. But you could have the commercial people saying, well, this is too much of a risk commercially. We shouldn't bring him back. The interests can work in both directions, I think, in this case. So it should have worked in the sense of all of those different sides challenging one another to come to the right decision. So I can see what they were attempting to do by forming the panel in the, in the way that they did. 
clearly there were always going to be people who were unhappy with with either outcome. I know you've written about the U-turn uh, this week, Adam, in, in The Athletic, and it sort of categorised people who they thought would be against the decision to reintegrate as, quote-unquote, hostile. Mm. I mean, that word in itself is, is so misleading, right? Yeah, and also the word supportive. Mm. You know, the, so I think sometimes details can emerge publicly that, you know, when you see them written down, you just look at it and you're like, what on earth, right? Equally, you know, if you are being asked to, as a major company, plan for something this significant, then United would probably argue that it is correct in some ways that you go to the lengths of micromanaging every single aspect of this, coming up with a risk assessment, recognizing what the challenges would be. And of course, one of the challenges that Manchester United were going to have from a communications point of view were people that might be very strongly opposed to that. And like you had people who were listed as supportive, you had people who were list, um, I should say, assumed as supportive, assumed open-minded, and also assumed hostile. And clearly listing uh, women's charities as being assumed hostile was always going to be something that, that, that went down extremely badly because it says so much, right? It, it, it says so much to the public. It says, we know that charities that specialize in supporting women who have endured really, really horrible things are going to be opposed to what we're trying to do. And I think at that point, surely you have to be to be having that conversation of, oh, is that the right thing to do? I guess the question is, you know, what happens next for Manchester United, for Greenwood and what lessons the sport can take from events of the last couple of weeks? Well, earlier we spoke to Teresa Parker from Women's Aid. Thanks so much for joining us, Teresa. What has your reaction been to how Manchester United have dealt with this? I think on behalf of survivors of domestic abuse, it was a relief that they came to the conclusion. But at the point where the statement was released, I think there was a lot of frustration around the reframing of what had actually happened. So within the content of the statement, where it says that, that Mason Greenwood was cleared, it was picked up instantly by survivors on social media mm. having having something dropped because a witness pulls out is not the same as being cleared and i think that when we use as somebody who's experienced abuse in a relationship and controlling behavior for words to be turned and the meaning to be changed and the narrative to be changed so straight away we knew that that wouldn't sit well with survivors who straight away felt like that things were being shifted to be able to kind of fit a more convenient narrative you wonder how that statement even got out without consultation from several other spaces. Is there an idea that someone like yourself or someone like Women's Aid should have been included in this process much earlier? We would have welcomed being involved much earlier, especially because we developed a campaign called Football United Against Domestic Violence just over a decade ago. So we've got relevant expertise within working with football clubs, football organisations, and, and sort of looking at issues around violence against women and domestic abuse. I would have been really happy to help assist in the process. Saying that, it was good to be in contact with them in the lead up to this. And I'm hopeful that even though this situation has been awful in many ways, it might lead to something more positive going forward. Hey, Teresa, it's, it's Adam here. I, I just want to pick up on what you were saying around, you know, being involved in the process at an earlier stage, because what Manchester United did was form this executive panel of different people internally. You had the uh, someone from commercial, someone from the football director, you had the legal counsel. Um, but obviously, they aren't the police and they aren't the CPS. 
what I wonder whether there would have been benefit in is very early in this process, at the very least, if that panel would have welcomed in a charity such as yourselves or an equivalent, I suppose to provide some sort of workshop, not necessarily to advise, but at the very least to provide a knowledge that they may not have had previously. I completely agree. I mean, through the experience of running um, the football campaign for us, being able to go in into like a variety of settings and just talk through the issues. So just to talk through the understanding of um, abusive behaviour and relationships involving coercive control, which is still relatively new in legislation. So lots of people don't understand that. The different kinds of nuances and also additionally the language that can be used. So a lot of the information we could have provided, as you say, wouldn't be necessarily making sure that everybody's well informed and educated and up to date with all the terms that are being used throughout this process. Yeah. Uh, obviously, last week, um, when at first we reported that United were intending to bring him back to the club, I know there was some contact which has been described on both sides as pretty positive between Women's Aid and Manchester United. Then, obviously, there was further reports around the way that the stakeholder mapping had been done by Manchester United. So how did people at Women's Aid feel when I suppose you learned that you'd been assumed hostile and should that have been the moment where if Manchester United are writing down that these charities may be hostile to something that we're proposing to do, should that have been the moment where it occurred to them, is this the best idea? I think that throughout this process, there are several stages where if you had understanding of domestic abuse and domestic abuse charities and what they do, you might not have made assumptions. Um, I would say in relation to what happened with the stakeholder mapping process, we know that the term hostile can be used in a variety of processes. But I think if you have you really understood and thought about what domestic abuse charities do, and to be really clear, we're in the business of saving lives and looking after very vulnerable women and children, I think you'd have a sense that that might not be an appropriate term to, to use. And obviously, how that's now been received by survivors and by people working for domestic abuse charities and sexual abuse charities is as if you're being actively described as hostile. And I think that there is a slight miscommunication within that. And I feel that by building relationships and really just explaining the impact of using these terms, they have a big effect. Um, the women and children that we support, and also we, we look at a variety of people across society who are affected by domestic abuse in different ways. They feel really hurt by the use of that term. And I don't think that unless you clarify, this is what we meant at the time, we didn't quite mean that. I think some transparency around that is important. Also, being in touch immediately sort of after that statement came out, it was welcomed. And I did feel like it was positive contact. And to be able to explain about the work we do, almost demystify kind of what domestic abuse charities are able to do in that space is really important because when you're called Women's Aid as a charity, I think, you know, in my experience of working with a variety of clubs and organisations, that sadly sometimes people kind of disengage or assume you won't be interested and actually the opposite is true. Yeah. So I want to talk about the wider issue around sexual abuse and, and, and domestic um, abuse. You know, many survivors never contact the police to report abuse in the first place. And, you know, the majority of domestic and also sexual abuse cases do not result in criminal conviction. How vital now is it then, then that clubs who are fundamentally employers adopt an approach that does not rely solely on the, the criminal justice system, but also deals with the reality of, of the scale of the issue. It is absolutely vital that football clubs understand that 
the vast majority of domestic abuse, sexual abuse and rape does not end up in a criminal conviction. And to be able to provide sort of education and awareness, you have to really understand how, how difficult this is for survivors. There's really good reasons why many women never come forward. And if you look at social media and you look at comments relating to this case, you can see exactly why people don't speak out. Women are frequently called liars. Um, they are, The way that they explain themselves, they're victim blamed. Um, if you go to the police with everything that's been happening around policing at the moment, where we, we are told of survivors of domestic abuse who have been contacted by police officers after disclosing abuse because they have their phone number, that you know misogyny doesn't kind of sit in separate boxes in society. This stuff doesn't just happen in football, it's throughout society. So to understand the scale of the problem and the odds of being able to get justice and actually the very good reasons why many women do not come forward and don't talk about it is absolutely vital to addressing it. But I, I would add that even though we know that most um, women who've experienced abuse in a relationship will not contact the police still every hour, um, in this country, uh, the police receive over 100 calls about domestic abuse. So the scale is absolutely huge. Hi, Teresa. It's uh, Sarah Shepard here. I know you said it, that this doesn't happen you know, just in football. This is a, a society problem. But, but we see the statistics every time that England play in a World Cup, um, there's a spike in domestic violence and abuse. Do you think United's approach to dealing with this has, has been a bit of a reminder of, of those broader issues at play when it comes to football and domestic violence against women and girls? It really does. And I think that there's kind of there's, there's two sides of the work with um, football, domestic abuse and violence against women. So there's within football, within football as an industry, while domestic abuse and violence against women is prevalent, as it is everywhere, you've got disproportionate amounts of power and money within that. And I think that there is a sense of sometimes you are better able to be able to make things go away. And over the recent year, I've commented on the use of um, non-disclosure agreements um, about where you have got clubs who might be complicit in being involved in trying to make things go away as a reputational issue. So there's that side of things with football. The other side, as, as you say, is where there are major international tournaments, we know that you can have uh, spikes in existing domestic abuse becoming frequent or becoming more severe. So we know that there is a link Football in no way causes domestic abuse. It's a societal problem, but it can become a catalyst. But as an organisation, we know um, that refugees within our national network, some of them would not have the World Cup on because for some of the residents who were there, mm -hmm. it was so triggering mm -hmm. because that's when the abuse would become more severe. Um, and we released a advert at the end of last year where it was it was all around World Cup domestic abuse courties coming home to raise awareness and. I mean, the one thing which has been positive is that there is a lot of um, goodwill within the football community that was shared really widely. It raised a lot of awareness, but this shows how much there still is to do. Yeah, I'm just wondering moving forward um, where you guys sit with working with clubs and educating football fans and also footballers in general as well. I, I think what this has shown is just how big it is. We're talking about we're talking about organisations, their employers, their global brands. Um, the amount of people who love football in some way will be affected by by these news stories because players are they're, they're talented football players, but also they're seen as role models. They're idolised. It drives the news agenda. So it's kind of this is reaching so many people in so many ways. It's actually sort of reinforced the need to be able to do this campaigning work and to be able to think about the most effective way to work across different organisations and directly with clubs. Because in my experience of working with clubs, the setups are 
quite different from club to club mm. and the culture can be quite different. So making sure we work in a way which isn't a tick box exercise, but a way which actually really lands and resonates with, with players and with staff alike. Teresa, have you had um, any, what's the response been like for you guys? Have you had any sort of increased interest from clubs or any any sort of sectors of the football community on the back of this case or is it too early to to gauge whether that's going to happen um it is too early but immediately i reached out to the context i work closely with on this who want to kind of, who wants to follow up and have conversations and i think that as, as awful as the situation has been in so many ways if we can start a more meaningful conversation on how both clubs and organizations can join up on this issue we might actually see some progression and i'm really keen to continue speaking with clubs and to kind of work collaboratively and as as i mentioned before i think the most important thing as well as having this as a priority issue is actually what sort of response has real meaning what would actually land what kind of resonates with with fans with players with the sort of footballing community you're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolev. I guess the the thing with this one is, Sarah, and it, it's it's incredibly unique in the sense that, and Teresa talked about it there, is that what's out there can't be unseen. It's a, it's a conversation around morality fundamentally and how a business is also run. Yes, yeah, it is. It's a it's a really difficult one, and I, I think as sports fans, not just football fans, in other sports as well, we're often asked to um, almost look the other way or put aside what is going on in an athlete's life outside of their sport and just focus on you know how brilliant they are, what they can do, you know their performances. You know we've seen it in boxing more times than I mm. care to remember in, over the years, most recently with um, Javonta Davis, who's a world champion, has been twice arrested on charges of domestic violence. In both cases, the charges were dropped and he's also pleaded guilty to a hit and run. And these these are things that when, I know when I watch him fight, I, I find it very difficult to celebrate his performances. He's an amazing boxer. He's so exciting to watch. But I can't, I can't get excited because I find it a very, you know, very difficult to put aside what we've seen and heard in some of those cases. And similarly, I think with Mason Greenwood, um, Manchester United fans would have found it incredibly difficult to sit there and applaud, as as Adam spoke about earlier, or cheer, you know, when he scores a goal. You know, it's it's asking fans to do things which are incredibly uncomfortable, given, like you said, everything that that we've seen and heard, and and that can't be unseen. Hmm. Is there an idea that? let's say this did happen and he managed to play for Manchester United, scores a few goals, this would all just be water under the bridge. I, I presume what Manchester United would have hoped is if their plan had reached a conclusion without any sort of leaks or anything making its way into the public, they would have had far more control over the narrative and over the framing. And maybe they just underestimated, one, the strength of public feeling. I'm sure there would have been people within the club who were saying things like, you know, if you do this, this might happen. But clearly, that that was not strong enough to to overcome what they came to believe was the right decision. They're, you know, when you read that statement, they're not saying we've looked at all of this and thought morally, ethically, we can't do it. They've listed all the reasons why they think Mason Greenwood should be able to resume a top-level playing career, but they're simply saying the spotlight at Man United is too big, right? The noise is too much. Isn't what's obviously glaring here is an apology. <laughs> it's a, a, a sim- apology for what? 
because you know he I know, he, but... he denies his char- he denies the charges. Mm. The charges have been dropped. Mm. Um, you know, and it's interesting because even in his statement, he says that he's made mistakes. I don't know what what mistakes he's referring to. You, you know, United say that they are satisfied that he you know did not do things that he was accused of. I think that's quite specific mm-hmm. the way that they phrase that, mm-hmm. and clearly he refers to mistakes as well. Um, and clearly there is audio of a man talking, you know, which many people think is is Mason Greenwood's voice. So <laughs> you end up getting, and this is what I mean when, you know, when you take this beyond what you've seen and what you've heard, you do end up in this kind of conflictory mm. quagmire. And I, you know, one of the things that I've kind of thought a lot over the past week is if you were to just sit 10 people down who had never seen or heard what what we have uh, before and basically just ask them, do you, do you think it's appropriate for the person in question to represent your company? Simplify it, right? I think we all know what the answer would be. There will be a decision that needs to be made on what Manchester United do with Mason Greenwood, the footballer, and where he might play football next. Here's the Athletics Manchester United reporter, Laurie Whitwell, on our Talk of the Devils podcast. This idea that United absolutely have to have a duty of care to Mason Greenwood, I don't think it possibly fully holds because there's certainly been instances of players being got rid of with, with far more um, bluntness than, than what's being afforded to, to Mason Greenwood. But that being said, you know, what what next? You know, it, it seems like they're going to try and help him with a loan. Is that what he wants? I think his view in all this is, is very interesting. Obviously, his statement, you know, in his name was collaborative to go back to that word with United I wonder how he personally is, is, is feeling actually you know when his career has now been confirmed as, as not being able to uh, begin again at Manchester United they don't actually absolutely categorically confirm that he won't play for United again you know they, they say that's the expectation that he won't be but then again I don't know is there a world where he goes on loan and, and scores a lot of goals and then the court of public opinion is altered I, I, I don't think that's I think it's a remote possibility, but it's not actually been totally ruled out. Yeah, this is the the major talking point, really. He's still under contract at Manchester United. We talk about moral obligations. (laughs) And also, I think as an employer, if someone's overstepped the mark for the company, the employer does technically have a right to say, thanks for your services, off you go. Um, You know, go, go play a trail elsewhere, but not here at Manchester United. But then... Which club picks a, a, a lad like this up with, with this insane PR already around him? Yeah, I mean, it's they're in a really difficult position now because I mean they've put out a statement saying they're satisfied he didn't do mm. the things he was accused of doing and denied. So that therefore means, well, clearly they can't sack him mm. because they have publicly communicated something very different to that. So it leaves them in a situation where they either have to sell him and... Some people will take a view that is it correct for Manchester United to commercially benefit from this situation? I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that criticism, but some people will feel that very strongly. Um, they could loan him out. Um, for, he's got two more years left on his contract and 75 grand a week. So, you know, it's clearly significant wages for United to try and at the least get covered. Um, and you know, they also have the option of a third year, as in if they wanted to trigger that as well. So, if they're looking to protect the asset for a sale, they could, in theory, trigger that option. Um, or they can settle, 
right? They can come to an agreement between them, which would, I suppose, see Mason Greenwood paid up. That would probably cost them, you know, six, seven million pound minimum, you would think. Um, and then it's a question of where does he go? Because as we had in the discussion last week, you know, why should a I don't want to use Plymouth again. Mm. Uh, I know, I know. I, I apologise to all Plymouth Argyle fans. But, but, but <laughs> why should a club in League Two be seen as a kind of the right place if Manchester United is the wrong place? Now, United obviously have set, I keep mentioning this, the harsh spotlight. So all they're saying is just the glare of United is too much. So maybe somewhere lower down the ladder it, it is appealing. You know, I mean, in... A twist of extraordinary irony. Um, there's reports that the Saudi League, the, the Saudi Premier League, is worried about the PR um, of, of bringing Mason Greenwood right. uh, to Saudi Arabia. Apparently, um, there's been links with Italy, Turkey, but look, there's only a week left in the in the transfer window. I know the Saudi one, and maybe the Turkish one as well, go a little bit longer into September. Yeah, Man United in general aren't very good at selling players, right? They've been trying to sell Harry Maguire for for all summer. So you know, good luck attempting to do it. Uh, with Mason Greenwood in the space of a week. And the, you know, the one thing we should say is, you know, some people may be listening to this wondering, well, if he goes on loan and he scores 25 goals and he starts to look like a fantastic player and Manchester United still have nobody scoring goals up front, does that open the door to him possibly coming back? Now, clearly United can't communicate in a statement publicly that someone under contract will never play for them again. I think we can all understand legally that that would be a very difficult thing to say. But United are being very insistent that they don't expect the player to represent them again. But, you know, that door is not 100% shut until it's shut, right? Yes, Sarah, one of the conversations we had last week was, you know, we bring back the Plymouth <laughs> Argyle quote. I basically said, you look, if, if he was, you know, an academy player who he'd been farmed off to, who was going to be farmed off to a team like Plymouth Argyle, who wasn't seen as a high prospect, who wasn't seen as a potential money generator, would we have come this far uh, with, with with this case? And it's back to my my thoughts around the, the industry we, we, we're in, right? And happy to criticise the industry I'm in because we need to have these conversations. If this was, you know, a, a kid that they didn't see making it on the, on the on the top stage, do you think this this case would have got this far? I think we all know the answer to that. Um, and my colleague Laurie Whitwell wrote um, a good piece on that uh, just yesterday, um, referencing some other United players, academy players who have been let go with far far less care than than Mason Greenwood is getting. I think we all understand that Greenwood's um, exceptional talent and potential um, is a is a very large reason for for why we've seen the the amount of deliberation that we have. One question I have, Adam, mm. I don't know if this is a really stupid question. If United have this evidence that Greenwood is is innocent and they're trying to sell the player and other clubs are nervous about it, would they pass that evidence on? Do you think to other clubs and say, look, you know. We've got seven. Although I guess the clubs then can't release it into the public domain yeah, anyway. Yeah. So maybe it doesn't make any difference. But you just think, you know, if they really need, they really need to sell him or or loan him out. Uh, well, I, th I think what Manchester United have done is provide a license to other clubs to take him, right? By being as collaborative as they have in those statement in those three statements on Monday, I think United have almost provided the gateway for the next club to be able to say, well, look, Manchester United have conducted a very lengthy internal investigation and these are their conclusions. The charges were dropped as well. So as a result of that, taking those two things together, 
we feel confident to take the player on. I think that is what that what I think that is the real impact for Mason Greenwood in a positive way, from his perspective, that Manchester United have done for him because I think they have provided a license really for any club he plays for in the future to point to that. And I think it's a very interesting thing that, you know, look, this is a kid who there's been other incidents with Mason Greenwood, right, during his career. Certainly not the first time the club has, you know, had challenges with Mason Greenwood, I think it's fair to say. So if anything was to happen in the future, Manchester United's statement on Monday will always be there. So they have, you know, they have put a lot of faith, right, in a young person who, at the very, very least, has been an incredibly challenging employee to them uh, for quite a period of time. And I wonder how that will age. Sarah, Adam, thank you so much for your time and also thank you all for listening. The Athletic. You've been listening to The Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Adonis Pratsides and Guy Clark with additional production by Mike Stavro and Jay Beal. The executive producer was A.D. Moorhead.